0: Why is this happening to me? Have you ever asked yourself that question? Life is good. Your marriage is going well. Just had a new baby, bought a new apartment. Things at work seem to be going well. Only to have your boss to come in and tell you that the company is restructuring and he must let you go. Why is this happening to me? You're a young professor at a top university, have a thriving research group, and have developed an excellent reputation. Unfortunately, one of your PhD students is underperforming, and you decide that they don't have the capacity to do a PhD, so you let them go. Infuriated, the PhD student falsely uh, lodges a complaint with the university of sexual harassment that leads to a long and painful investigation that tarnishes your reputation and puts in danger the possibility of your receiving tenure. Why is this happening to me? You just retired and looking forward to do some of the things that you've put off for many years. You go to the doctor for a routine checkup, only to find that you have an aggressive form of cancer and must be admitted immediately to the hospital. Why is this happening to me? All all these years, You've been a faithful follower of Jesus, serving in and supporting the church. Why is this happening? Is it because of some a disobedience on my part? We, we want to know why. We know Romans 8.28, that, that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. But we want to understand how such things can work for our good. What is the purpose of these difficulties? We want to see the overall plan, the big picture. If you've asked yourself the question, why is this happening to me? You could perhaps begin to imagine how Joseph felt in the account that Karen and Francois read to you from Genesis 37 and 39. Before we jump into today's passage, it would be helpful to remind ourselves of God's big picture as we've been tracing out in our summer series of the matriarchs and patriarchs of the Old Testament in the last several weeks. While one can see God's plan for humanity beginning in the opening pages of Genesis, we jumped into the story with his call to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, "'Go from your country and your kindred "'and your father's house to the land that I will show you, "'and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. The big picture that all the nations of the earth will be blessed is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus, the Messiah. And part of what we've been doing this summer in our our series is uh, of studying the patriarchs and matriarchs is to follow that messianic line. The the promise that God would make from Abraham a great nation was given to him when he was quite old and, and, and yet childless. But in their old age, Abraham's wife Sarah gave birth to a son, Isaac, to whom God repeats the promises. I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham, your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and will give to your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Now, if we follow the family line, Isaac then marries his cousin, Rebekah, to whom is born Jacob and Esau. Although Esau is older, the blessing goes to Jacob, to whom the promise is confirmed. I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac, the land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Then, as Stefan Pacht uh, touched upon two weeks ago, the situation becomes a bit more complicated. Jacob seeks to marry his cousin, Rachel, but after serving Her father, for seven years, he's tricked by his uncle and is given uh, her older sister, Leah. So he serves another seven years to be able to marry marry Rachel. Leah first bears him four sons, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. Unfortunately, Rachel is not able to conceive, so she gives her servant Bilhah uh, to Jacob so that she could have children through her. Through Bilhah, Jacob fathers two more sons, Dan and Naphtali. Leah, since she had stopped, giving, uh, stopped bearing children, gives Jacob her servant, Zilpah, who bore two more sons, Gad and Asher. Later, however, Leah herself gives birth to two more sons through Jacob, Issachar and Zebulun, as well as a daughter, Dinah. And finally, God enables Rachel to conceive and she has a son Joseph and then a second son, Benjamin, but she dies giving birth to Benjamin. So as you can see, God is beginning to fulfill the promise that through Abraham, he will make a great nation, but it's not immediately clear through whom the messianic line will pass. If you've read the details of Jacob's wives and his concubines, It's all filled with bitterness and and envy and uh, and rivalry. But but that's nothing compared to the story of Joseph. And because Joseph's story is is a familiar one taught in Sunday school, it can be easy to miss the degree of dysfunction of this growing family that becomes the great nation of Israel, the people of God. So this brings us to today's first passage in Genesis 37 that, that Karen read to you. As one, of the sons of Rachel, as one of the sons of Rachel, the wife that Jacob really loved, it's perhaps not so surprising that, Jacob, uh, that uh, Joseph was one of Jacob's favorites, along with his little brother, Benjamin. And this didn't particularly make life easy for Joseph, uh, as he attracted the scorn of his brothers. Now, at first, it seems like Joseph is somewhat of a snitch. Verse 2 and Joseph brought a bad report of them to his father. We had the pleasure of having five of our grandchildren with us for a week earlier in the summer, and at first they were so excited to see each other um, uh, because they rarely get to uh, to spend time together, but it didn't take more than about two days before they began to report to their parents and their grandparents uh, on each other's bad behavior. (laughs) But in Joseph's case, He's 17 years old, so so you might not expect this kind of childish bickering. It's difficult to judge whether or not this was the right thing for Joseph to do. As we follow both his character and that of his brothers, later in the story, it could be that Joseph was perfectly right in reporting them. But nevertheless, it, it didn't help his standing with his brothers. But it also didn't help that Jacob demonstrably loved Joseph more than his brothers. Verse 3. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any, of his, any other of his sons, because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a robe of many colors. The robe of many colors was a tangible sign, reminding his brothers of his favorite status, which led his brothers to despise him. Verse 4 but when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now, at this point, the rivalry between siblings might not seem too different from what happens in some of your own households. But what happens next seems to put the situation on another level. Joseph had two dreams. In the book of Genesis, Messages from God were often given through dreams. Recall Jacob's dream of the ladder with the angels ascending and descending that Zach preached on a few weeks ago. It was where God reiterated the promise that he made to Abraham. In Joseph's two dreams, God seems to be indicating to him that he will be ruling over his brothers. In the first, Joseph and his brothers are in the field binding sheaves. His sheaf stood up, and those of his brothers bowed down to his. His brothers hated him even more for his dream than his snitching on them. And then his second dream, the sun, moon, and eleven stars bowed down to him. This might seem incredibly arrogant, but it's not a question of arrogance. It was simply a message from God. However, even his parents are a bit taken back by it. Now, in the next scene, his brothers go out to pasture their father's flock. They had to travel some distance to be able to find good pasture land. As they were likely gone for some time, Jacob wants to have some news of them. So he sends Joseph to see how they're doing. When he finally finds them, his brothers see him from far off and they conspire to kill him, which is moving well beyond what we would consider typical sibling rivalry this is a seriously dysfunctional family. They wanted to murder their brother, kill him, and throw him down into a dry well. They concocted a story to tell their father that a fierce animal devoured him, and then they said, we will see what becomes of his dreams. Reuben, the firstborn says, don't shed his blood, just throw him into the pit, presumably to let him die, but but he had planned to rescue him later. So when Joseph came, they stripped him of his robe and threw him into the pit. Then they sat down to have a meal. Doesn't it seem a bit cold-blooded to you, calmly eating a meal as your brother is at the bottom of a pit? As they ate, a caravan of Ishmaelites came by, and Judah, his brother, has a bright idea. What profit is, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him. For he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. So they sold him for 20 shekels of silver, a typical price for a slave at the time. Now, let's just take a step back at this point. You know, kids hear about the story of Joseph and his multicolored coat in Sunday school. We're all familiar with this story. But we shouldn't let our familiarity cloud our view of what's going on. This is not innocent sibling rivalry. They wanted to murder their brother, and in the end, they sold him as a slave. This is nothing less than human trafficking. This is a seriously messed up family. And these are God's chosen people? Think of the suffering that Joseph must have experienced, first being left to die at the bottom of a a pit without food or water, then being pulled up only to be sold to foreigners as a slave. Yet, this was part of God's plan. As he told Abraham, we read in Genesis chapter 15, Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. The nation of Israel, is going, captive, uh, nation of Israel going into captivity in Egypt was part of God's plan. And as you'll see in the next couple of weeks, Joseph's going to Egypt ends up saving his family's life from famine. The dysfunction of Jacob's family did not frustrate God's plan. It was part of it. And so was Joseph's suffering. No matter what you say about Joseph snitching on his brothers or his dreams, there's no way that Joseph deserved the suffering. How do you react to undeserved suffering? Some people blame themselves, thinking somehow they must deserve it. This must be because of some sin in my life. What did did I do wrong? Some get mad at God. They blame him. Things are not going the way they're supposed to, implying, of course, that they know better than God how things are supposed to go. Some lose their faith in him completely. If God were there, he wouldn't let this happen, they think. So he must not be there at all. The New Testament does say that all things work for good for those who love God. How does one uh, reconcile undeserved suffering in light of this? I think there are five things we can say about suffering. There's certainly much more, but let me me, uh, point out five of them. First, suffering is clearly sometimes part of God's plan. God's plan was that Abraham's descendants become a great nation and that all nations of the earth be blessed through through them. And as we'll see in the following weeks, Joseph's story was an important part of that. Second, suffering shows us what's in our own hearts. It reveals to us our character, our view of God, and the depth, or lack of depth, of our faith in Him. We We will see this in the life of Joseph as the story continues. Third, while all things do work for good for those who love God, we might have a narrow definition of what is good, what is our greatest good. What is ultimately good for us might be different than what we realize. We often think of good as comfort, relief from pain or short-term happiness. However, what is ultimately for our good is being drawn closer to the one with whom we will spend eternity. Fourth, God's plans don't always work out on the timescale that we might like. For example, 25 years passed between God's promise to Abraham that he will make a great nation from him and the birth of Isaac. Fifth, suffering reminds us that this earth is not our home. Referring to the patriarchs, the author of the letter of Hebrews writes, All these died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared prepared for them a city." Now, up to this point in the story, we've been given no clue as to how Joseph reacts to the suffering. We don't hear anything really from Joseph. And as the story continues in chapter 39, this becomes clearer. He's been sold as a slave once again, this time in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. One thing becomes abundantly clear. God does not abandon Joseph in his suffering. In fact, just the opposite. God is fulfilling his promise that divine blessing will come to the nations through Abraham's descendants. Chapter 39 that Francois read, verses 2 and 3, says, The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. And then in verse 5, from the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. Joseph doesn't display any sense of bitterness for what has happened, and he seems to work as if he is serving the Lord. Rather than become bitter about his situation and blame God, his, his response is to walk in faith, But then another trial comes, another test of his faith, found in Genesis 39, 6 through 23. And for the sake of time, let me just summarize the story. Potiphar's wife fancies Joseph and wants to take him to bed. Day after day, she tries to seduce him. Let's look at Joseph's response in verses 8 and 9. But he refused and said to his master's wife, behold, Because of me, my master has no concern about anything in his house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He's not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Joseph might have felt sorry for himself for all the suffering he had experienced, and justified to himself giving in to the temptation to sleep with Potiphar's wife. However, he recognized that sin is a sin against God. It reminds us of what David wrote in Psalm 51. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. In what way would Joseph's sin, if he had committed it, have been a sin against God? If you think of it, when we choose to sin, we're basically saying that we know better than God Himself what will be our greatest good. That was the original sin of Adam and Eve in the garden. Sin at its root is an expression of a lack of trust in God, that if we follow His ways, we will be blessed. And trust in Him is exactly what God has always wanted. From his people, this is what makes one righteous. When God made the promises to Abraham in Genesis 15, that Martin preached on, we're told in verse six, and he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteous. This um, passage was quoted by the Apostle Paul in his letters to the Romans and the one to the Galatians. Romans 4:3. For what does Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. When we sin, we're basically saying that we know better than God himself what will be for our greatest good. Now, to continue with the story, one day Joseph was in the house doing his work. Usually there were other servants there, but in this case, there was no one else in the house. Potiphar's Potiphar's wife, except Potiphar's wife, she takes advantage of the situation and catches him by the garment and tries to get him to lie with her. How does Joseph deal with the sexual advances of his master's wife? And and what can we learn from how he responds? First, he runs, leaving his cloak behind. He gets himself out of there, removes himself from the temptation. He doesn't hang around when the approach from Potiphar's wife comes. He bolts. How do you deal with temptation? Do you flee from it when it comes, or do you hang around? Are you careful about not putting yourself into places in which you might be tempted? Take, for example, how you interact with the opposite sex at work. In today's world, it's inevitable to have one-to-one meetings with members of the opposite sex. However, there are some practical things that you can do. For example, tell your spouse with whom, you're, uh, with whom you're meeting or having lunch with that day, so there's a sense of accountability. Leave your office door open when possible, or, or meet in a public place. If your temptation is related to things you see on the Internet, take steps to block inappropriate sites or emails. If this is a serious problem for you, there are services that will monitor the the sites you visit and report them to someone you name to hold you accountable. Demonstrate your trust in God by getting as far away from the temptation as you can. Proverbs seven describes a young man (coughs) lacking sense that just happens to pass along the street (coughs) where he knows an adulteress lives he shouldn't be surprised when he meets her on the street and with seductive speech persuades him to follow her. The question is, what is he doing strolling down the street where he knows she lives in the first place? In Joseph's case, he ran, leaving his cloak behind, and his seductress uses this as evidence against him, accusing him of sexually assaulting her. But Joseph acted in faith and did what was right, but he suffered for it. When his master returned, he threw Joseph in prison. Now, did you notice in our reading today, uh, we completely skipped over chapter 38. Karen read chapter 37 and Francois read chapter 39. Chapter 38, it turns out, is a complete break from the story of Joseph's life. And one might wonder why why it's inserted right in the middle of Joseph's story. If you have time, you should go back and and read it. It's somewhat of a sordid story about Joseph's brother Judah in which he shows himself to be the complete moral opposite of Joseph. While while Joseph acts in faith and flees from sinning with Potiphar's wife, Judah Judah ends up sleeping with his daughter-in-law and has two children by her. The contrast with this sordid story serves to emphasize even more how Joseph acted in faith and obeyed God. Now, even though we haven't arrived at the end of Joseph's story, which we'll get to in the next couple of weeks, we can already see that there is, in a sense, in which Joseph is a foreshadowing of Christ, as Martin mentioned. In the New Testament, we frequently have quotations and allusions back to the Old Testament. But in the Old Testament, we have a foreshadowing of what uh, will happen in the New Testament. And we see in this story how God was fulfilling his promise to Abraham, which comes to its ultimate fulfillment in Christ. And Joseph is a foreshadow or a type of Christ. The unjust suffering for the sins of others before being raised up, which we'll learn in subsequent uh, chapters. Being sold for 20 pieces of silver. Jesus was sold for 30. Resisting temptation and being perfectly obedient to God in the face of it. And the fact that those he serves are blessed. With Joseph being a Christ-like figure, one might have expected that the messianic line goes through him, that is, through his descendants. However, this is not the case. It passes through his brother Judah, who is the one who suggested that Joseph be sold as a slave. We can see this in the genealogy in Matthew's Gospel. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron. Not only does the messianic line pass through Judah, it's through his son, Perez, whose mother was Judah's daughter-in-law, Tamar. It wasn't through the most righteous, Joseph, but through Judah, who is morally not on the same scale as Joseph. What, what, What do we make of this? God's promises of blessing do not come through merit or through good works, but through grace. This is the same way we're accepted by God. Romans 5.8, but God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We're accepted not because of our good works, but because of his grace, and we, be, we can be used by God to accomplish his purposes despite our sinful selves. Christ died to pay for our sins, and all we have to do is put our trust in him and accept his atoning sacrifice. If you're here today and perhaps are new to church and the message of the Bible, I'd love to talk to you afterwards and share with you the grace of God that he offers to each one of us if we believe in his son. Let's let's pray.